This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about new understandings of how people grieve and cope with loss. Today's guest will explain why much of what we've traditionally been told about grief is not correct and will share with us more helpful strategies that have come from listening to those who've actually gone through and experienced loss and grief. Today's show features an interview between my colleague Dr Lucy Hone and Dr Thomas Attig. Tom has dedicated the last 25 years to listening to mourners, teaching and reflecting on how we come to terms with loss. He's the author of The Heart of Grief, Death and the Search for Lasting Love and How We Grieve, Relearning the World. Tom has written extensively on grief and loss, care of the dying, suicide intervention, death education and the ethics of interactions with the dying and the nature of applied philosophy. He is a past president of the Association for Death Education and Counselling. He's also served as vice chair of the board of directors of the International Work Group on Death, Dying and Bereavement. So with thanks to Lucy and Tom, we begin with their discussion on how he came to what is now being called a revised theory of grief can you just tell us you know in a nutshell um, about your thinking about theories of grief and the stage models and how you have updated that well let me let me tell you where it came from I started teaching a course on death and dying in 1973 in Ohio at a university and um, I thought they're afraid to go into a room of a bereaved person or a dying person. Uh, and for themselves, they're not really sorting out their own uh, experiences of death and dying, grief and loss. And I've got to help them do those things and help them not be so very afraid. So I better have them look at their own experiences. Mm-hmm. And I had, uh, had them keeping journals for years and years, uh, all the way through the course. And I'd give them, 15 or 20 different exercises in the course of the term. And then they had things to read. And we had a lot of discussions and some films and some guest speakers and so on. But the the journals um, included an exercise asking them to talk about the three most important loss experiences in their lives. And, you know, what was it like when you first experienced the loss or first saw it coming and you weren't going to be able to do anything to stop it? Uh, what was it like um, for you? What were your experiences uh, in the middle of what you would call the worst of it? When it got really bad, what was so bad about it? What was the, the terrible uh, in your experience? And if you have had the experience of moving past the worst of it, mm. what was some of that like? What told you that I'm getting a handle on this or... I'm at least sleeping better or feeling better in some way or another. Um, And they never told me about going through stages or phases. They never told me that they were feeling like they were mentally ill and needed a psychotherapist to come in the room and uh, maybe medicate them out of what they were going through. They told me about how... They didn't know what to do with the pictures that were all around the house or 
they really had a hard time going down the road where their relative was killed in the car accident and it was the road directly home. So they found other ways to go home rather than revisiting that site over and over. They told me about how it was going to be really hard to talk to grandma now that grandma's lost my uncle Jim, who was her oldest son. Uh, I want to say something, but I don't want to make it worse for her, so I don't know quite what to do. And I'm feeling kind of crappy myself, and I wish Grandma could help me. But I know that she's maybe the last person I could talk to. Um, Mm. I said something to my minister, and he came out with this stuff that just wasn't helpful at all. Uh, So I'm having to do a lot of this on my own. Anyway, they, they told me about living a full life. Yeah. Um, emotionally, physically, socially, spiritually, and every intellectually, they had all kinds of questions that weren't being answered and so on. Mm-hmm. And it didn't come down to five stages or seven, or there, there used to be models that had as many as 11 stages, mm-hmm. uh, or they do a little cycle and give you a diagram of the spiral that you're going to go through for a while. Um, and I thought... This is just nonsense. Um, I better, I'll, I'll tell them what they're telling me. I said, it looks to me as if you're talking about having all kinds of troubles in every dimension of your life, and you don't know how to go on living. And you're, in some ways, not even sure that you want to. <laughs> um, and you're bereft of hope, uh, as well as the presence of this person and so on. So as early as the 1980s, I started writing things about um, an alternative view of grieving as a process of relearning how to live uh, as the fully multidimensional human being uh, that you are. And some people are having more trouble um, reshaping their daily life patterns. Some are having a hard time seeing the future and a place for them in it or how to move in it. Um, Some people are psychologically overwrought and overwhelmed by emotions, and uh, some aren't even acquainted with emotions that they have, but they've got questions that won't let them sleep at night and so on. So we're going to respond to people. We have to respond to them as they're living with this or having trouble living with it. And you have to ask them to tell you the story in detail of the relationship that you had with this person. Uh, What was it like? Uh, Was there any trauma or horror uh, or just awful things about the loss experience itself? Or was that sort of expectable, anticipated, here it comes, uh, we're sad, we're crying a lot, but it doesn't keep me up at night with nightmares uh, and so on. Um, And then uh, what was it like sitting with, Uh, the awfulness of it for a while and what got you moving again um, and what's really bothering you now and let's talk about that part of your life. Well, I've gotten to a point where I want to sort out the stuff that was left in the closet. Uh, I closed it off for a half a year, but now it seems like it's time to go in there or my child's room. Uh, I haven't touched it for a long time and I haven't let anybody else go in there. And if they dare do it, I've been, Uh, like a little anger machine, and so on. So I I began thinking about um, what's involved in learning how to live to begin with, and then 
what's it like to relearn an entire world? How long did it take you to learn to live in the world in the first place? And, I, and when I'm doing a workshop, I'll ask people, how many of you here figure that you have learned how to live? You finished with that. You don't have any more learning to do. No. Well, it's kind of an unending process, right? It's with you your whole life? Yes. Well, why would, if grieving is a process of relearning how to live, why would you ever think that that comes to an end? Tom reminded us that at heart, we are social beings and that grief shatters our networks of connections and requires us to rebuild our connections in new ways. I wrote my first little essay about grief, sort of reflecting back to my students some of what I had learned from them. And I focused on how lots of people who are grieving say that it feels like they're falling apart. Uh, It was shattering. Uh, I'm not sure I'll ever put the pieces back together again, that kind of thing. And I thought about how we think of ourselves. And in the United States, probably more than any other place on earth, although it's pretty common in England, and probably England derivative countries suffer from the same uh, hyper-individualism, thinking of ourselves as self-contained entities that are of um, supposedly not affected at all when something happens in the outside world, unless we kind of choose to be. Uh, And I said, all right, so you're thinking of yourself as like a nugget of reality. And here's this person that you love in that same space with you, and you kind of move around one another and so on. And that's the individual way of thinking of selves in social space. All right. Actually, we're like this one. This one dies. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really true that you're not affected at all? Yeah. What kind of metaphor would help people understand that they're falling apart? Well, what if we think of a self as something like a spider's web, um, connected to mom over here in a hundred different ways, dad over here in a hundred other ways, mom and dad's relation. My relationship with my mother affects my relationship with my father and with my brother or my sister. And you've got this whole network of human beings that you're connected with, activities that matter to you, places in the world, uh, foods that you love, music that you love, uh, and so on. And when someone dies, it's as if a blow is struck to the web and Connection, connecting threads to that person are just left there kind of dangling and the rest of the web is shaken as if you hit a spider's web. It doesn't completely fall apart. But the spider then works on putting it back together again, but not the same. Inevitably, never the same. And so on. I said, kids, students, does this make sense to you? Well, that's the way it is. Well, then get over the individualistic sort of idea. We are inherently social beings. Our connections make us who we are. They're part of us. Mm. They're not accidental uh, add-ons to us. They are integral to who we are. So I wrote about grief and personal integrity. That single metaphor has taken me farther than anything I've ever thought of. Uh, And when people hear it, they think, Well, that captures a lot, doesn't it? And Mm -hmm. if you lose more than one person at a time, what happens? 
or if you're in the AIDS community in the 80s and 90s, and you're one of those people where all of your friends have died, do you feel like you're still who you were? Tom shared his view on the resilience that most people still have during the time that they feel at their lowest ebb. I talk about brokenness and how daily life patterns are shattered and how a life course that you anticipated living is disrupted and how uh, ego illusions that you are in control, you're invulnerable, uh, and so on, are shattered. There's a lot of brokenness in a life. Uh, And relationships and ties with other people and other things that you care about can be shaken or broken. So there's like broken glass on the floor. (laughs) It's it's a very powerful thing to experience that much brokenness. My way of thinking of resilience is... Um, what's working with what is not broken, drawing strength from what is not broken. And what's not broken? Well, your physical life isn't broken. You keep breathing automatically. Your body keeps you running. You have to feed it. You have to get some sleep if you can, and that can be a challenge. But it's still going. You're resilient physically. Um, you're still capable of what I call soul. Um, You're still capable of caring deeply, of loving. You're still uh, capable of drawing strength from family, from tradition, from history, from community. Uh, You're still capable of giving love and care, although now you need more coming your way than going out. I think your spirit isn't broken and your spirit is that within you that uh, is a capability of taking on the new, Mm. stretching into the new, Mm. overcoming Mm. what is difficult, capable of hope, faith, courage, kinds of uh, virtues that Seligman Mm. writes about uh, and so on. Your spirit isn't broken and your loving isn't broken, including you're loving for the person who has died. Uh, And learning how to love in separation uh, is one of the best things uh, to do. Next, Lucy and Tom discussed the importance of continuing bonds and connections with the person who has died. And that continuing the bonds, being able to love in separation, was definitely one of the greatest, most important pieces of our grieving jigsaw. So, you know, I thank you so much and honour you for that work because that is so critical. And when you read um, the old school, um, that, you know, that Freudian kind of, we've got to sever our attachment (laughs) with the dead. And I, you know, like all of us, I have... I have a friend whose um, mother was murdered when she was a child and I met her at university and she was telling us when we were at university, so, you know, how many years later, about the fact that as soon as her mother was died, they put away all the photos, no one was allowed to talk about her. And that is that traditional way of grieving. And yet you can see when you are told that it's okay to continue loving them in their absence you can see how devastatingly mean and awful that would be to have oh God, to try yeah. and sever that attachment. And why, why would you? Let me say something more about that. I told you about writing this piece called Grief and Personal Integrity. 
And I talked about the need to reweave the web, to reshape your daily life and sort of rethink where you're going from here uh, as you look to the future. And I, I would draw on the board, uh, you're still gonna be related to all of these people and connected to all these people who are still alive. Some will disappoint you and you might lose some friends on, on top of uh, the person who died. Uh, but you'll probably go back to work or go back to school or whatever. My students were telling me all of that. And I said, and there's this wedge where this person has been severed from being physically present in the world with you. I said, part of grieving is putting the threads back together of that relationship with the person. You'll never forget your mother. You'll never forget your grandfather. Uh, you'll never forget but you'll never stop loving these people. You'll just love them differently or in different ways, as opposed to the normal ways of sort of now and again being able to hug and kiss them and look them in the eye and laugh with them out loud together and, and things like that. That was 1980. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, and I, I heard this, and I've never met in my lifetime a grieving person who doesn't want to talk about the person who's died. I've met lots of them who've told they shouldn't be talking about the person who's died. And I thought, well, this, and then the more I ever read in, in the literature, I, I learned that people were told not to do what everybody's doing. Who's ever, have, have these researchers ever talked to a bereaved person? <laughs> they want to talk about their daughter. They want to talk about their grandma. <laughs> and, if you're a psychologist or the old fashioned psychiatrist, you've had people in your office for years talking about their relationships with their dead parents. Mm. You know, mom screwed me up, dad screwed me up. Mm. Uh, that's why I'm in here. He's made me anxious. She's made me, he's made me angry and mm. so on. Aren't they talking about a continuing bond that's a troubled continuing bond? Yeah. Oh, I, I, and then in, in the mid nineties, they discover in their research that some people are maintaining connection with the person who's died. And not experiencing complicated grief, that they're actually okay yeah. for having done that. It's, it's, it's astonishing. What? I remember I was working with my Oxford editor on how we grieve, and uh, I said, uh, I grew up in a, a large family, and we, we talked about dead relatives all the time. She said, well, that strikes me as very unusual, Tom. I said, well... Actually, the students I interviewed and had write journals and so on were talking about their dead relatives all the time, too. And I said, she said, not in our house. We never talked about Uncle Harry or Aunt Mary or whatever. I said, I think you are living in the unusual circumstance, yeah. uh, although there is a tendency in lots of places to be very quiet about those who have died. In my family, we always told stories. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> and, and, you, you'd as easily tell a story about my grandmother, who's yeah. been dead for 40 or 50 years now, mm -hmm. uh, as you would about uh, Uncle Harry, who's still alive. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, because I think, they're not part of your life. I mean, it's, yeah. so, it's so artificial and absurd, isn't it, to think that, um, yeah. that, that, that physical death actually at, removes them from your life. This relearning to live idea... Um, we will never stop missing the person who died. So if grieving in part is sadness or sorrow, 
you're going to carry that. You won't be that the way you're totally absorbed in it when it's first happened. Mm -hmm. But you will always have a sadness within you that can surface and surface in surprising ways. (laughs) Um, And you will never stop loving the person who died. I mean, my dad died in 1969. He's been dead for 51 years. All right. I didn't stop loving him when that happened. I still think of him now and again. I remember around birthday time and Christmas time and uh, when people start behaving the way he did or when the old jokes come to the surface. And I think I heard that story from Dad or um, things we did together. We, we were baseball fans together, so that stuck with me for a long time. And to see a new hitter and say, I think Dad would really like the way he handles himself at the plate and so on and so on. Um, I think if, if you get over the idea that uh, grieving is something that uh, where closure uh, is something to be going after, uh, the sadness won't close and the loving won't close. You really kind of like the sadness to go away. But on the other hand, it's not as terrible as it once was. So sometimes it can be pretty bad the second time around, but it will not grab you the way it did the first time. Um, I, I, I just, uh, if we let go of the idea of closure, that would help an awful lot. Tom explained to us that the five stages of grief that most of us are familiar with were in fact exploring the experience of dying and were only later actually applied to grief. Uh, I was listening to a, a fellow named David Kessler, I think, who co-wrote a book with Kubler-Ross toward the end of her life. And she had always said these five stages were about the stages of dying and taking in the reality of mortality. Uh, and he affirmed in the talk that he was giving that at the end of her life and in this book, she kind of conceded that, well, it could be used for grief too. And it, the processes are pretty much the same. But the first three stages are about the failure of three defense mechanisms. Denial, you are trying to avoid or evade a persistent reality that can't be made to go away. That will fail. <laughs> you won't be able to do that. So you kind of slip if you follow the stages. Then you go into anger. Have you ever known anybody who tries to control things through anger? So you try to control the uncontrollable. Mm. Oh, this isn't working. It's still there. (laughs) Um, Bargaining. Try to manage or negotiate with what is non-negotiable. All right? Mm. Can't do that. Depression. Mm. Shit. This doesn't work. None of this. None of this works. Yeah. So the, the, the first three things I've tried have caused the fourth <laughs> stage. <laughs> and, and they don't work, do they? <laughs> you can't do it. So then you get to acceptance. And he was bald-faced in how he defined acceptance. He said, acceptance isn't being at peace with and all lovey-dovey and kind of hippie-hippie at the end of the 60s and early 70s sort of thing. It is just flat-out acknowledging this is real. That's what acceptance is. All right. Now, he then went on to say, and when you get to acceptance, grieving is over. You finish the process. And my thought was, wow. No, when you accept the reality, that's when you begin. Yeah. And it's something other than your ego that helps you make it. So I'm actually kind of curious, though. Why do you think it has prevailed, particularly with 
health practitioners who um, you ask anyone about what they know about grief and they will tell you about the five stages. And it's still been on health practitioners. Um, it's still in their curriculum. So why has it prevailed, do you think, Tom? They, well, they will, they will tell you that because it is in their curriculum. I've attended investment conferences. I've listened to journalists. It's not simply in the professionals' textbooks, the nurses, the doctors, and so on. Uh, it's in popular culture. It leaked, it's seeped into popular culture, and it's taken as a given. And that's what really frustrates me about the five stage, or any of those stage models, is that they also, um, what comes with them is a, a passive approach. So, they, so then when people are prescribing those, what you hear as the bereaved is, oh, there's not much I can do about this. I've just got to, you know, these are the stages I am going to go through. So the stuff is all going to happen to me. So it robs people of any kind of sense of agency and choice. And what I have noticed um, and various other things in life is that when you are faced with something so final and um, terrible that you have no control over, what we are all desperate to do is exert any control and influence over anything that we can. So being told to just be a passive recipient of this thing that is happening to you is, I think, um, really, really irresponsible and not helpful in some ways. Well, the stages leave you passive. I want to tell you a story. We, we belonged to an interesting church in uh, California when we lived there up until about 2010. And... Um, we developed some friendships. We were in the church for seven or eight years. And there was this older fellow uh, at the time. I thought he was older. Uh, now that I look back, he was younger than I am now. But uh, <laughs> uh, Jim and his wife, we knew well. I, was, I sang in the choir. It was, it was a black church. I'm singing in a black church choir. Imagine that. Okay. So <laughs> anyway... Um, He's been married to his wife for a number of years, and his father-in-law dies. And they had a going-home ceremony, a, a, a funeral for him. And I remember going up to Jim, and I, I put my arm uh, around his shoulder, and I said, you know, your wife is getting a, a lot of attention. Uh, and I have a feeling, you know, this fellow was in your life for quite a while, I wouldn't be surprised if this is kind of hard for you, too. He said, not really. He said, I'm just grateful that I knew this man for 40 years. He made so much difference in the kind of person I was able to marry. Uh, and uh, she's the woman that she is in part because he's her father. And we had so many good times together, and I remember all of those. What's to grieve about? Yeah. I'm just grateful. Yeah. He was at he was at gratitude immediately. Yeah. Now, is there something wrong with him for being mm -hmm. at gratitude immediately? <laughs> I don't think so. I think a lot of people struggle to get to a point where they can remember what to be grateful for. Yeah. And when they do, that's what a what a relief. What a good place to get to. And you can still be sad in all kinds of ways too. But if you can, you talk about um, what do you pay attention to. The more you can harvest the understandings of the legacies you've been left, mm. and the sooner you can get to that place, mm. the better off you're going to be. And something yeah. deep within you is capable of still appreciating and loving. Let me tell you a little exercise. Your audience will like this. 
Okay. Yeah. But, but how can you love someone who's not here? I'm going to ask you the question that I ask an audience. Lucy, did you bring all of your living friends and relatives with you today to make this taping? Mm -hmm. Are they in the room with you now? Could you introduce me and I can wave to them and they could wave mm -hmm. back? They could say hi, I could say hi. Mm -hmm. Can you do that? Did you bring them all with you? Yeah. So true. No one ever raises their hands. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Do you think that when you left them, they stopped loving you? The last time you saw them and you, you parted, they stopped loving you? No, what a silly question. Um, did you stop loving them when you came here today to take this? No. Well, then you must be loving them in separation. Most of the time, actually, we're separated from the people we care about. We're lucky to maybe have an hour or two a day if we're living with them. If we're not living with them, we see them a lot less than that. We don't have even the slightest suspicion that they stopped loving us no. uh, when we parted or that we, they don't have any doubts that uh, we stopped loving them. Mm. Um, we know a lot about loving and separation already. Yeah. We can love them in every way and they can love us in every way that we've been able to love one another that mm. doesn't require physical presence. What a beautiful way to end this episode. I want to thank Tom and Lucy for this wonderful conversation that reminds us it's natural and helpful to keep our connections with those we have lost and that we can love in separation. We're sharing Tom's interview over two sessions. Join us again for part two, when Tom will discuss what to say to the bereaved, the value of rituals for grieving, how we can manage our response to grief, and how we can develop what Tom calls sorrow-friendly practices. I leave you to reflect on Tom's beautiful advice that our role in grieving is to harvest the legacies we have been left by those who have passed on. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. You can listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz or on nziwr.co.nz or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. To purchase books or online programs on coping with loss and resilient grieving, go to nziwr.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.